If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you don't know where it is, have a look in the index. A few weeks ago, we began a series looking at the Bible. And Bibles, yes. Judy bought her Bible, everyone. (laughs) She's very proud of the fact that she bought her Bible. Well done. Well done, Judy. Well done, everyone. And we've begun looking at a series, um, looking at the Bible, really with the hope and the intention of addressing some of the problems that some of us may have with the Bible. And if you can cast your back, uh, mind back a couple of weeks, we began by asking uh, actually whether any of us are really reading the Bible at all, um, and whether any of us actually know how to read it. And Um, What are we supposed to do when some of us finally admit that we may not actually like some of what we find in the Bible when we read it? And that actually some of us find parts of it at least a little bit offensive. And what we're wanting to do with all of this, just to reassure you, we're not trying to uh, undermine the scriptures in any way. In fact, what we're really trying to do is, is, is quite the opposite. What we're wanting to do is encourage a conversation and a dialogue and an honest and open and frank conversation about some of the very real tensions that some of us have with certain aspects of the scriptures. And this morning, uh, we're not going to have time to get through uh, everything this morning. Um, so t- today is sort of part one of part two. Um, today... Today won't make very much sense without next week, and next week won't make very much sense without this week. Uh, (laughs) I hope that's the case, at least. Um, What we're going to attempt to do this week and next week is we're going to mine some of the depths of some of the more challenging and violent passages from the Old Testament and how we might think about them. So, if you got a Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 20, and we'll jump straight in with this amazing verse. But as for the towns of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded. Great. Remind me why I'm doing this again. And what are we to do with passages and texts like this, of which there are actually a number in the Old Testament? Passages, texts, stories, narratives, which seem to be advocating what is, to all intents and purposes, some kind of indiscriminate massacre, some kind of ethnic cleansing, some kind of genocide, and which for many people is a stumbling block, both within the church and outside of the church. We read texts like this and many of the others, and it's very easy for us to respond to them with a kind of, is that actually in there? Like, is that, did you know that verse was actually in the Bible? Is that really in there? Is that, is that actually what God Commanded? Like, like, really? What are we to do with texts like that, stories like that, narratives like that? Is, is it an, ac- an accurate representation of what's going on? Um, because, again, it's another 
popular perception that people have. And the truth is that a lot of us, or some of us, fear that these violent passages from the Old Testament, they're kind of a bit like um, skeletons in, in God's wardrobe. Um, the fear is that if we open up the wardrobe, if we probe a little bit into some of these violent passages in the Old Testament, or if we probe a little bit into how we understand and perceive judgment, or if we probe a little bit into the question of what actually hell is, um, we're a little bit anxious that we might discover that God isn't actually who we thought he was, after all. That God actually may not be that good is our anxiety. And so because we don't want to discover that that might be the case, we just try and avoid looking in the cupboard. Some of the reasons I think that we can sometimes feel that way is because I wonder if, particularly when it comes to these passages around violence, whether we have some kind of caricature as to what's really going on in some of these biblical stories. And so what I want us to attempt to do today is maybe think through some paradigm shifts that may well give us Uh, some kind of framework by which we can perhaps uh, reclaim a slightly healthier, perhaps more biblically robust understanding of what's what's actually going on here, what might actually be going on here. And hopefully we might even begin to see these passages um, not in spite of or in contradiction to, but because of the goodness of God. So the question I've got really is, might there actually be something slightly more nuanced going on here? And when I say here, I'm talking about um, Joshua and Jericho, for example. I'm talking about um, Gideon and the Midianites. I'm talking about Saul and the Amalekites. And basically, uh, Israel coming into the Promised Land. Israel coming into Canaan. And is there something perhaps slightly more nuanced going on here and that perhaps in in the face of some of the popularist interpretations of some of these stories today, might they actually be a source of hope, uh, particularly for the exploited and the oppressed? Might they actually be, is there any possibility that they could be an expression of what we like to call the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God? Sounds like a tall order. So um, this week, I'm hoping to tackle some of the big picture. What's the overarching uh, narrative of some of these passages? And next week, uh, which you really won't want to miss, we're going to look at what some people have called the drastic marching orders. Because the truth is, um, some of the things that Israel is commanded to do seem really, really brutal, to say the least. And uh, we need to look at that, and we need to see what that is. So Let's start today with the overarching big picture story that's what's actually happening here with Israel that gets them into this situation in the first place um, with Canaan. And for many people, the caricature is something along. We don't know if we think about this that much, but if we were to sit down and think about it and say, what's going on here? For some of us, it would be a bit of a caricature along the lines of, you know, Canaan is this uh, idyllic, peaceful paradise. It was once home to the Garden of Eden. And until so one day, there's this problem. And the problem is that Israel needs land. Israel needs 
territory and, and Canaan's people are minding their own business. They're keeping themselves to themselves in their tropical utopia when Israel suddenly comes out of the dry and dusty wilderness lusting after Canaan's land of milk and honey. And all of this fruitful land, all of these resources are literally there for the taking, but there's just one small obstacle in the way, and that is a whole bunch of people. And so um, Israel, strong-willed and and muscle-bound, they simply decide actually they're going to take as much of it as they want, which happens to be all of it. And so uh, they march in. They march into the land with the ancient equivalent of machine guns and begin mowing down everyone and everything before them. They leave no survivors, not one, uh, maybe a a, a prostitute here and there and a couple of her relatives. And that's sort of our image of what's going on. But is that actually what's going on here? Maybe one of the first things we need to look at is who exactly, who exactly is doing all of this fighting? In all of these Old Testament sort of conquest narratives, who's actually doing the fighting? Because when we think of, when we think of warriors, you know, when we think of um, heroes, we're well, not heroes, warriors, let's keep it down. One of the images that comes to mind, uh, that comes to my mind at least, is like a, some sort of modern day Rambo, you know, some kind of Rambo of his day. Do you all remember? Yeah, there he is. This kind of, you know, machine gun toting, muscle bound hero, right? And we tend to think of these kinds of narratives in the Old Testament as really being the strong using their God, using their gods to justify the oppression and the conquest of, you know, the weak. And actually, and it may be controversial, but I wonder if the Old Testament is actually flipping it this on its head and painting a very, very different picture. Again, maybe this is some of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And in fact, what we are seeing here is God rising up on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong, whose oppression has been raging for far too long. And maybe it would be helpful just to take each of these sort of gun-toting, muscle-bound, heroic uh, themes uh, in turn and try and show how the Old Testament might actually be flipping some of these things around on their head. Okay, So um, before we get to that, again, when we're thinking of Israel in this situation, having come out of Egypt and going into the wandering around the wilderness forever and then going into the promised land, um, it's important that we remember that Israel is not like a powerhouse. Israel is not like this great, mighty empire they are depicted they are described they are indeed the last and the least of the ancient world they have been beaten and downtrodden for centuries they're right on the edge of one of the mightiest empires of the day Egypt and and by contrast what they're doing they're going up against one of the mightiest civilizations of the ancient world and what have they got up their sleeves as they take on the mighty nation of Canaan. So Israel, is Israel the, the machine, this machine gun toting fighting force? Is that who they are? Is that what they're about? Is that, is that kind of you know, the picture in our imagination or are they something else altogether? We tend to assume, I tend to assume that these guys are all armed to the teeth and that they've got all the latest weaponry at their disposal. Um, and yet with Israel's encounter with Canaan, nothing could be further from 
the truth. Israel is outrageously outgunned and they are outrageously outmanned. When Israel comes out of Egypt, do you know, it's not like there's a stockpile of AK-47s lying around for them on the edge of the wilderness for them to pick up as they step into the promised land. Israel is a nation of slaves. They've been wandering around, around the wilderness for like 40 years. And when they get to Canaan, Canaan, you've got to remember, Canaan's got like horses and chariots. And horses and chariots are like the equivalent of jet fighters and stealth bombers of the day. These guys have got advanced, sophisticated military technology. Canaan has got horses, chariots. Israel's got sticks and stones and whatever else they've been able to pick up wandering around the wilderness. Israel is like an 11-year-old skinny runt taking on the 18-year-old playground bully. What about, um, what about defenses? Well, Canaan is clearly established. It's got heavily fortified defenses. It's got fortresses. It's got outposts. It's got all these things to defend itself. Whereas Israel's defense system um, is like a small wooden box. It's something that they made uh, while they were wandering around in the wilderness. And its significance is that it carries the presence of God. God goes with them in the Ark of the Covenant. But to be honest, it all looks pretty feeble. Israel just doesn't have any defenses. What about leadership? Canaan's got all of these experienced generals. They've been practicing their strategy and they've been practicing warfare for years on the surrounding nations as they've been squabbling and conquering and expanding and assimilating different civilizations. Israel hasn't been doing any of that because Israel's just been literally trying to stay alive in the desert, worrying about snakes. And as far as leadership goes, you know, Israel's leadership is basically the, the, the best shepherd they can find. What about armor? Canaan's got all this high-tech metal, swords, shields, armor. Israel, they're, they're described as wearing the same rags that they've been wandering around the wilderness with for the last 40 years. What about warriors? Canaan has literally got giants. You know, when um, Joshua sends the spies in there, they're all terrified because there are giants in the land. These guys are huge. You know, they've been living off milk and honey for years. And they're big and strong and fit. And, and, and they're kind of rich and affluent. And there's a whole sense of confidence and self-confidence that goes with that. Israel, by contrast, has been living off bread and water. They've been having a little bit of manna for breakfast. And if they're lucky, a bit of quail. Uh, there's some water maybe from the rocks, but it's all very basic rations. And they're literally just trying to get from day to day until they reach the promised land. Israel marches into Canaan less like a conquering army and more like a ragtail bunch of vagrants. They're outrageously outgunned. They're outrageously outmanned. Israel is going into Canaan and they are going to get crushed. Their only hope is that God goes with them. And it's in this context that they kind of learn how to sing what we know of as Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, um, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Which, when you start to put it in context, sounds more like a <laughs> fingers crossed thing rather than this brave. It's like, please, God, like, be there. Please show up. Because if you don't, we haven't got very much. That's the reality. Unless, unless God shows up, Israel is going to get utterly crushed. Um, she steps out onto the battlefield, trusting that God is going to fight for her. 
And again, just so that we get the right perspective on this, this is the very antithesis of what would have been mainstream warfare of the time. These guys are in a different league altogether. Canaan is this power. Israel is just massive vulnerability. The last and the least up against the mightiest and the strongest. Israel is this laughable underdog. And their only hope is that God might be with them. Okay, what about muscle-bound? Well, not only are the Canaanites strong, um, they've got strategy on their side. They've got ability. And as I said, with that comes this whole load of confidence. Israel, again, once again, comes up short, very, very short, because her strategies are absolutely ludicrous. Um, Again and again and again and again, Israel's strategies are crazy. I mean, just read the Old Testament. They are off the wall. Just think about Jericho. And there's plenty of other examples like this. Um, This is like the first battle going into Canaan. And Jericho is like this heavily fortified military defensive outpost fortress. And again, Israel is coming as this nation of slaves with nothing. Nothing in their pocket. Nothing to fight with. And you can imagine Joshua, and he's in his chat with the commander of the Lord's army going, okay, you want us to take Jericho? Like, what's the battle plan? Like, this better be good. What are we actually going to do? How are we going to do this? And God comes back with a, well, I don't know. Why don't you, why don't you march around the city, you know, this fortress every day, like once a day, just once a day for six days, right? And then just do it once a day, then come back. And then do it the next day. Do that for six days. And then on the seventh day, um, why don't you march around it seven times? Oh, and get, well, you know all those like, nice little priesty chaps? Get them to like, blow on their trumpets. Because that's, that's going to do the trick. And we think about that and we're like, well, that's amazing. But it's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It's like, imagine the D-Day landings and everyone is like playing a flute. I mean, it, it would be carnage. It's, it's just unimaginable. You can't begin to think that that's how anyone would find themselves going into warfare. It's a surefire recipe for disaster, unless God is up to something. And I would suggest that these slightly off-the-wall battle strategies, I mean, it's not just a one-off in Jericho. They're, they're almost always ludicrous and ridiculous. You know, wait till you hear the sound of marching in the balsam trees. What, like, what does that even mean? Um, but they're intentionally designed to be like that because it's not actually Israel who's doing the fighting, it's God fighting for them. Gideon's another example, um, back in the book of Judges. Israel is now in the promised land, um, but they're still being exploited by the mighty forces of um, Canaan. So God is going to raise up a deliverer for them. Great. Hooray. Like, release from our oppressors at last. And then the guy that God chooses is described as the least in his family, that's not great. And then his family is described as the weakest in his tribe. That's not good either. And then his tribe is described as the least in the land. It's like, uh, okay, Gideon, go Gideon. And Gideon is like the last and the least and the weakest. And yet God says, I'm going to raise him up to deliver my people. So Gideon, God bless him, eventually does what he can to kind of rally some troops and some forces. And they come across like the militia from the Midianites. And and, like, they're a pretty sizable, pretty impressive, imposing force. With the combination of their allies, they're described as being thick as locusts. In Judges 7, it says their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. So it's quite a few of them. 
right? And Gideon has uh, this ragtail crew cobbled together, and his number can be counted. And, I mean, good, fair play to him. He's, he's actually amassed like 32,000 warriors, which is impressive. And then, come God's, then comes God's battle plan, which is, uh, yeah, you've got too many men, Gideon. I'm sorry. Like, sorry, what? Like, 32,000, that's not very many in comparison. Yeah, send most of them home. Okay, so Gideon whittles it down from 32,000 to 10,000, and then God says, mm, yeah, no, too many. Do you remember that whole lapping and water drinking thing? Gets down to 300. 300, which is just ridiculous. Who sends troops home when you're up against this huge force? And, and the reason that God does this is because he's saying he doesn't want Israel to boast, because he's saying he doesn't want Israel to say, it was my own strength that saved me. See what's happening here. This isn't Israel using God to justify her conquest of the weak. This is God rising up on behalf of the weakest nation in the known world against this mighty powerhouse, these mighty powerhouses that have dominated and oppressed for so long. This, um, there's this verse Psalm, from Psalm 46 that a lot of us know and love, and it's, um, be still and know that I am God. We love that verse. You know, it's on our Christian calendars, and um, it's, there's a picture of a bench and a stream, and it's all peaceful and quiet, and, and it's lovely. And we read it as be still and, and get away from all the stresses and strains of this life and just relax and, and know that God is God, and, and that's fine and that's good. But if we go back to the original context, really, of that verse, this is actually a conflict verse which finds its roots back in Exodus. If you remember the story of the Red Sea, um, uh, Israel's just been brought out again from Egypt's oppression, or uh, you know, Egypt's massive empire, their injustice and their oppression of the Israelites. And they're running into the waters, um, the chaotic waters of the Red Sea. And on, and on one side, they've got all of this power and the chaos uh, of e- Egypt's military might um, and the political sort of forces of chaos bearing down on her. And then on the other side, you've got the natural forces of chaos sort of reflected in the, in the waters of the sea. And, 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 and it's like, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do? This is crazy. And then Moses says to the people in Exodus 14, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord God will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And this as an idea, this gets picked up and becomes a theme throughout the Old Testament. Be still and know that I am God. But it's, it's in a conflict context. It means that God will rise up on behalf of the weak to defend them against the tyranny of the strong. Israel has absolutely nothing. They can do nothing. God has to rise on their behalf. God has to be the one who will fight for them. All that they can do, the only thing they can do, is be still and trust in him. And God may be patient, but he will ultimately arise in defense of the weak when they are being tyrannized, when they are under exploitation, and when they are under oppression. And this matters because Israel isn't taking on these empires for God in a kind of terrorist sort of way jihadist kind of way and this is God taking on these empires for Israel this is a visibly 
vulnerable people out in the middle of a battlefield. They're about to get crushed, smashed into the ground, unless God shows up in their defense. So Israel's not this machine gun toting, muscle bound force to be reckoned with. She's the antithesis of all of those things. She's not even heroic. And, and by heroic, I'm thinking in terms of sort of ideology, where in the past, nations and the present, nations have felt justified in conquering others because of the greatness of their particular sort of civilization and the might that lies behind them. So you think about ancient Rome. Ancient Rome was justified in its assimilation of as many nations as it could basically pick and choose into their vast empire, into the Pax Romana, just because, you know, we can and we should and... You'll thank us in the long run, honestly. Right? It'll be good for you. Like, we're an amazing civilization. You really want to be Roman. I mean, you want all those straight Roman roads, don't you? So you'll, 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 be, you'll thank us. You know, and um, we're not exempt from that. The British European colonialism was exactly the same. Let's expand uh, around the world because we're justified in going out and colonizing the world and establishing ourselves and our laws and our customs um, because... Well, you want to be British, don't you? I mean, of course you do, right? Um, and so we took all sorts of things, and many of those things were actually good, and many of those things were really, really not very good. And kind of with that deal came, uh, you know, that we're going to come, we're going to bring you all this good stuff. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to take over and exploit and denude your country of all of its natural resources. But you'll thank us in the long run. And all of that gets legitimized and justified because of the greatness of the conquering dominant civilization. And it's still going on today um, with countries who have a penchant for neo-colonialism. But nations have always used this to justify expansion. But again, Israel is kind of moving in the opposite direction here. God confronts his people. Back in Deuteronomy, he says this. He says, understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. You are a stiff-necked people. So basically, God is like slating Israel. He's like, this is not massively flattering. It's like God saying, I just want you to know that you really are not that great. You are not that great a civilization. Um, if you look through the Old Testament, it, it, it's almost like Israel celebrates, and it's is probably the wrong way, but they, they delineate, they chart, they chart how backwards they are. You know, they, the victors tend to depict themselves as strong, heroic, courageous, and noble. Israel doesn't do that in the Old Testament. Israel is constantly described. She describes herself as weak and fearful and idolatrous and unbelieving and disobedient. Israel sort of paints herself throughout the Old Testament as this anti-hero and the fact that victory comes um, in spite of herself, not because of herself. There's this great passage in Ezekiel where God describes himself um, finding Israel in uh, Egypt. And it's described as God walking out into a field and he, he hears uh, this cry from a baby and he, he goes and he finds this baby and this baby has been abandoned and it's coughing, it's spluttering in its own blood. This baby's been mistreated and abused and basically left uh, to die. And God takes her as his own. And he cares for her and he brings her up and he rears her. And it's a picture of Israel. It's not a very flattering picture of Israel. The last, the least, the weakest, 
the most vulnerable, the most broken. And yet God comes alongside her, picks her up, cares for her, and establishes her. So, what's going on here with all of these texts? That we read and we just find them like violent beyond belief. We just can't begin to reconcile what we think we know about a loving God and all of this violence and carnage and death and destruction. Um, We will come on to more of the detail of the death and the destruction and the carnage next week. Uh, So so you don't want to miss that. Um, But I would suggest that part of what's going on here, at least, is God choosing the smallest, the weakest, the most helpless, vulnerable, powerless nation of the ancient world um, to declare to the mightiest, wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest powerhouses um, of these empires that this is who God is. This is a God who cares for the weak. And he may be patient, even for centuries, while destruction rages and power grows. But the time will come when God will rise, God will arise, on behalf of those who are suffering under tyranny. It's actually the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And when we look at these passages in the Old Testament through these lenses, if we were to look at these passages in the Old Testament through a different set of lenses with a different perspective, um, we might begin to see things in a different way. We might have a different perspective. Maybe what's going on here is that God is confronting and challenging the ways in which we wage war with one another and have done since the beginning of time and continue to do so. Maybe God is confronting and challenging challenging the ways in which empires continue from time immemorial to today, to establish their dominance. Maybe God is confronting and challenging the ways in which oppressors get away with beating up on the oppressed for so long. And maybe God is challenging the injustice of it all. Perhaps God is confronting and challenging the ways that the strong are using their power to justify their conquest of the weak. And he's confronting it by taking the last and the least and the weakest and instead using them to establish this new kingdom reality in the ancient world. There's a chap who's written a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet, which is, which is a great read. Um, I was very grateful for all of his uh, insight into this as I was putting this together today. But he, he writes this, he says, if we were to use colonialism as the analogy... Perhaps this all looks a lot more like Native American or African or Asian survivors rising up with God against the Western imperial powers who've been oppressing them. Or if World War II were the analogy, perhaps it looks a lot more like God rising up amongst the concentration camps for those being annihilated and instead taking down the Third Reich. It's interesting how we might look at things through different lenses and respond to them in a different way. How would we respond if we saw God rising up uh, the Jews who were in Auschwitz and took down the Third Reich? 
How would we how would we respond to that? Would that be just? Would that be fair? Would that be okay? Or would that be ethnic cleansing and genocide? How would we how would we respond to that? I wonder if the sum of what's going on here is um, is what we read in Isaiah 42 um, about Jesus. Actually, is it possible that some of what we're reading here, Isaiah 42, it says this: "Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice." To the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Is there something about the narrative of these violent? passages and texts from the Old Testament that points towards the suffering servant. When we look at Israel being raised up as the weakest and the last and the least to overthrow these empires of oppression and tyranny, is there something of the kingdom of God, the upside down nature of the kingdom of God being reflected in and through the person of Jesus, pointing towards the coming of Jesus? who, through his death on the cross, becomes the least and the last and the weakest and the most vulnerable. And yet in his vulnerability, overthrows the ultimate forces of evil, overthrows the ultimate, darkest, wickedest empire, and brings life. Could it be possible that some of our interpretations around our reading of these Old Testament passages might be slightly out of step? Is that possible? And that despite our certainty, maybe we're not actually that sure and we're not that absolutely confident that the way we're reading or the way we have been reading or the way we've been hearing about these Old Testament passages, maybe, maybe we've got it slightly wrong. Um, we've still got to deal with all of the marching, the drastic marching orders, uh, all the stuff that they have to carry out. Um, there is no getting away from the fact that um, in and through these battles, the Israelites are given what seem to us to be some seriously harsh and difficult commands to carry out, um, all of which we will look forward to looking at next week. Da, da, da. Why don't you stand?